If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For many people, 1950s Britain might conjure up images of a grey and austere nation, still haunted by the spectre of the Second World War. But was it all ration books and crumbling bomb sites, or was it a vibrant, forward-thinking decade of renewal? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, John Borkham joins the historian Alwyn Turner for a whistle-stop journey through the highs and the lows of the era, answering questions on subjects as diverse as the birth of rock and roll, the coronation of Elizabeth II, and the lingering effects of the Suez Crisis. So Alwyn, thanks for coming on the History Extra podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we've got a lot of questions to get through, but to set the stage, I just wondered whether you could give us a a bit of an overview of Britain at the start of the 1950s. What was the social and political climate like at the time? I think it feels to me as if it's very unresolved. We have this hangover from the war, a new generation waiting to make its presence felt, and a feeling that somehow we were stuck a bit. The 1951 general election, the average age of the three main party leaders was 71. The average age of the population was 35 at that point. So we're talking about a much older generation. These are are people who had left school when Queen Victoria was still on the throne. And that sense of a very old establishment, I think, 
hangs over the decade to a large extent. Possibly the most famous cultural work of the 1950s was John Osborne's play Look Back in Anger. And there's a moment in that when Alison says to her father, who's an old retired colonel, a crusty old chap, she says, you're hurt because everything's changed and Jimmy's hurt because everything stayed the same. And I think that, to me, feels like what the 1950s is. It's a new world waiting to be born and feeling frustrated that things haven't moved quite fast enough yet. Yeah, indeed. And there is a very big spectre hanging over the 1950s, and that's obviously the Second World War. I have a question here from Ade Mohammed on Facebook, which was, to what extent had Britain's economy recovered from the disruptions of the war? Oh, it had to a large extent. I mean, by the 1950s, obviously, it takes a little while to make the transition from military to civilian again. But the average growth in gross domestic product in the 1950s is 3% per annum. I mean, politicians would kill for that now. The economy was recovering really rather well. Unfortunately, as many politicians at the time noted, it was growing faster in other countries, um, France and Germany, and Japan, let alone America, which was leading the world at this stage, other countries were growing much faster than we were, but there was progress, as long as you didn't compare it to anyone else. And had the experience of war, do you think, in terms of society, was the country a less elitist society than it had been before? You know, everyone moving together and working together? There was certainly a hangover from the war in those terms. There was definitely a sense of a national unity at the beginning of the 1950s. I mean, I think it dissipates over the course of the decade. But the great cliche of the time of a decline of deference, there is some truth in this. There was a sense of a shared endeavour that I think is there. Also, what's hanging over it is the experience of the 1930s. So the economy is shaped very much by the absolute determination that we're not going to return to the levels of unemployment that we used to have. And the target was set for 2% unemployment, And that was largely met through the decade. So it was a time when work was reasonably available, plentiful even. We had a lot of questions from listeners about rationing. Just to clarify, how long did that continue for after World War II had ended? Rationing finally comes to an end in 1954. So it lasts for longer in peacetime than it did during the years of conflict. And not everything was still rationed. I mean, stuff came off the ration gradually. Sometimes it went back on. Sweets famously came off the ration in 1949, and there was such a massive increase in the quantities that were being bought that uh, they had to be re-rationed. But there were things that hadn't been rationed during the war. Bread had not been rationed during the war, and it was in peacetime. There was still a feeling that I think also comes through in the early part of the decade that we haven't really quite recovered from in social terms. The economy, as I say, is, is doing okay. But there's still these things hanging over. I mean, tea is derationed in 1952, eggs and sugar in 53. The last stuff to come off the ration was butter and meat and bacon, cheese, everyday things. That was still there. And people resented it very, very bitterly. Yeah. And do you think that shaped people's attitudes towards food in later decades as well? Because I think when people think of post-war food, it's all very bleak and grey and tasteless. <laughs> well, yeah, it does have that reputation, but it is also a time when people are starting to become aware of other things. I mean, Elizabeth David publishes her book on Mediterranean food in 1950 and then goes on to do subsequent books on French and Italian cooking. The Good Food Guide makes its first appearance in 1951. So there is an awareness 
that there are other cuisines available. It just takes a while for that to filter through from the urban upper middle classes through to a more general population. But by the end of the 1950s, there are Italian restaurants starting to spring up. There is a sense of breaking away from, as you say, the kind of the image of the grey austere food. Absolutely. And as we talk about this time of transition then, the end of this wartime period, crossing over into this new age, I mean, we have the death of a, a wartime monarch in 1952. We have the death of George VI. I mean, how did the general public react to that? Well, George VI was a genuinely popular king at this stage, but I think what's really distinctive about it is that it was a smooth transition, which we hadn't had the last time. 1936, the last time a king died, we were plunged into the abdication chaos and we had three kings in the space of a year. And 1910 was the last time when the succession had happened in the way that you would expect it to happen from parent to child. It went perfectly smoothly. And although George VI was genuinely popular and was mourned, and it was a relatively young and unexpected death, his daughter, Elizabeth II, as she becomes, is incredibly popular as well. And because she's so young, I mean, she's only 25 when she comes to the throne, there was a sense of renewal, I think. It is a marking point where... The wartime monarch has passed, and now this is a new era. And there are a lot of people trying to talk about the idea of the new Elizabethan era. I mean, it doesn't really materialise, but it was definitely around in the work of commentators and, and academics at the time that there was something, a new age was upon us. Yeah, and 1953, we see the coronation. Was it really such a big celebration that everyone participated in? Oh, it was huge. It was televised. We'd never had that before. The previous coronation had been broadcast on the radio, but it's over 90% of the population are either watching or listening to the coronation. It was a massive coming together of the nation in a, a single event. And of course, it sends sales of television sets rocketing, as royal events so often do. We had the same thing with video recorders and the wedding of Charles and Diana in the 1980s. And it was genuinely popular, genuinely a big event. And you mentioned television there. How did the growing popularity of television affect daily life more generally? Television had been around in the 1930s, but suspended during the war, returns in the late 40s. But it's not really until the 1950s, and particularly the coronation, when it starts to really take off. And it's in those days, you had to have a radio license in order to own a radio set in the same way that we do with TV licenses now. And it's 1958 when TV licenses outnumber radio licenses. And you can feel the shift in the technology here. The broadcasting is now going to be about TV rather than radio. And by the end of the decade, people are watching TV in all classes. It has become the default entertainment medium of the time. And cinema collapses. Ticket sales fall by about 50% over the course of the 1950s because of TV. A quarter of all the cinemas in the country close because of TV. It takes over and wipes out the cinema as the main form of entertainment and radio as the kind of secondary form. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. We've had a lot of questions now about youth culture. And there's, there's a question here from Monica on Twitter, which was, how did the war affect children who became teens and came of age in the 50s? It was a question that a lot of people asked at the time. There had been a rise towards the end of the 1940s, a rise in juvenile crime, which was seen as being a product of the war years. There had been an entire generation of children had grown up essentially without fathers, either because they were off serving or because the children had been evacuated from major cities into the country away from their families. And it was felt by many that this had produced a generation that was going to be wild and undisciplined and unruly and criminally inclined. And then the juvenile crime figures dropped a little bit, so it didn't quite work out like that. But it hangs over the period, not simply the war itself, but the ending of the war. The shadow of the atomic bomb from 1945 hangs over this period very heavily. And although people get used to the idea that we now have the capability as a species to wreak such massive devastation that possibly is, is almost suicidal as people get used to it a bit but you can still feel an uncertainty about it that hangs over the times but against that there is this explosion of youth culture which is probably i would suggest one of the defining features of the decade is a younger generation many of whom have served in the war you know so it's not just those who come after it's in terms of youth culture the first really big event i think is probably in 1951 when The Goon Show is first broadcast. Spike Milligan creates The Goons, and it has a huge popularity, but a very age-specific popularity. It appeals to young people. Older people are baffled as to why anybody would think that this is funny. And Spike Milligan is very clear. He served in the war, and when he was lying wounded in the Italian campaign that he served in and waiting to be rescued, he assumed that he was going to die. And he writes in his memoirs, he said he wrote an epitaph for himself. I died for the England I dreamed of, not for the England I know. And I think that shapes a huge amount of what he then does and others do afterwards. This idea that the England that exists, the Britain that exists, is not sufficient. It has to be has to be recast this time. And talking of shadows hanging over, the shadow of the First World War is still there. The great reforming government of Clement Attlee in the 1940s, after the war, a lot of that is dealing with the issues that were left over from 1918. The house building programme, the creation of nationalised industries, you know, that had been much talked about in the early years after the First World War. The mines and the railways and other industries should be in state ownership. And so, again, it's this sense of an old world that is still there and needs 
not necessarily to be swept away. That would be overdramatic, but but needs massive change. And I think, as I say, that seems very much the, the story of the 1950s, is this clamour of younger generation for something different. And how did this younger generation challenge traditional norms? I think the celebration of youth itself is important, but it also comes under the influence very heavily of American consumerism, which people have seen on the screens. You see this in the movies, these wonderful images coming from Hollywood. And of course, America doesn't have any equivalent at all of austerity as we have it here. So by the early 1950s, after years of rationing, you're looking at these images of land flowing with milk and honey and a world of plenty. And people wish to participate in that. But particularly young people wish to do so. There's a study by the mass observation people which shows a real generational divide over how America is seen. Older people resent America. They don't like it. They think it's brash and superficial and vulgar. And young people think it is exciting and dynamic and wonderful. And I think that's one of the defining characteristics of this new generation is they're looking to America for a lead because it seems to be so much further advanced. Yeah, and that ties in neatly with this next question, which is from Andrew on Twitter, and that's how did 1950s Britain take to rock and roll music? With enormous enthusiasm in certain quarters. And it was youth mostly, but particularly working class youth. Middle class youth is well into trad jazz by this stage. The idea that we're going to revive the music that was heard in New Orleans in the 1920s. That's what's heard in art schools and and colleges and universities. But a working class youth embraced rock and roll with great enthusiasm. And then obviously goes on to reinvent it. I mean, very much the story of the 1960s is Britain, that generation that had taken to rock and roll, finding a new way of expressing it. The greatest contribution that Britain makes to rock music in the 1950s is actually none of the musicians. It's Jack Good, who's a TV producer, who creates the TV show 6-5 Special for BBC and then Oh Boy for ITV and invents a new version of what television can be, let alone what music television can be. And he's obsessed with the presentation of it and the fact that this is fantasy because, of course, rock and roll famously is a blend of American black rhythm and blues and white country music with a bit of gospel thrown in. And those musics don't really mean much or anything to most British people at all. We've not heard Hank Williams singing country. We've not heard the great rhythm and blues and blues artists of the time. This music kind of arrives as a completely alien force. It has no roots in Britain at all. And Jack Good is sees it as a fantasy world and it's an art project as much as anything else. And so when Britain does go on to reinvent it, it does so not with the idea that this is a set of folk musics that we can draw on because they're not indigenous to Britain. It is a world of fantasy and make-believe. And as you say there, TV is key to the popularity of rock and roll music. Television and also cinema, of course, because this is where people first encounter it, they hear Rock Around the Clock on the soundtrack to the film Blackboard Jungle and send the record to number one in the charts. And hearing it in a cinema with full volume on those big speakers, that's something you wouldn't have been able to replicate very comfortably on radio or the gramophone players of the time. There's a reinvention of technology here as well that record player sales increase massively because they have become smaller and cheaper. Transistor radios come in by the end of the decade and 
that also helps with rock and roll and with other forms of youth culture because it means that you can now have the access to this in your bedroom as opposed to the massive radiogram, this huge lump of equipment that sits in the family living room. And you're probably not allowed to play your rock and roll records very loudly on that. But now you can afford a small, cheap record player yourself in your bedroom. That changes the nature of things. It changes how you consume this music. Yeah, and it sets things up for the next few decades. I now want to talk about women. How did the role of women change during the 1950s, both at home and in the workplace? It evolves over the period of the decade, I think. The immediate period after the war, there is a very definite attempt to get women back in the home and out of work. Women obviously had done a huge amount of the labouring in the war years whilst the men were away. And then the men come back. And again, that determination not to go back to the unemployment of the 1930s means that women are very heavily encouraged culturally to give up the idea of being at work in order to make jobs for those returning servicemen, ex-servicemen. And that gradually changes over the course of the decade. But the underlying cultural assumption at the beginning of the 1950s, the vast majority of girls leave school at 15. They will go into work, but the expectation is that they will stop working when they get married. And they tend to marry young at this stage. People generally are marrying at a much younger age than they do nowadays. Three quarters of women are married by the age of 25. So at that point, women are expected to cease paid employment to bring up the children. And then when the children are older, they might wish to go back to work. And that is very much what happens by the end of the decade. Because unemployment is so low, there isn't a vast bank of people to draw on as the economy grows. And so women are encouraged to return to the workforce. So although at the beginning of the decade, you've got around about a third of women are in jobs, by the end of the decade, it's up to about a half. So the proportion increases and there is a sense of things changing. But I think it's, it's like a great deal of stuff in the 1950s. You can see the seeds of what is to come. I mean, you can from this distance at any rate, as opposed to things actually happening. So there's a huge political debate over the divorce laws at the time. Divorce is massively rocketed after the war, as it tends to do, because wartime marriages entered into in haste and then don't survive the reconciliation or the separation, possibly. And there was a big concerted campaign to try to reform the divorce laws to make it easier to get divorced. And politically the establishment is not quite ready for this. And so the issue is kicked into the long grass and it will return in the late 1960s. But the reforms that are enacted in the late 1960s are precisely the ones that were being put forward at the beginning of the 1950s. It just, as I say, you can see the seeds of what will happen. It's just it's not quite happening yet and people are getting impatient. It's also worth just one other footnote in that in terms of women... Because she's often forgotten, Barbara Mandel becomes the first woman newsreader on television, which is quite a thing in itself. The idea that a woman is allowed to read the news and you're allowed to see her. It only lasts for a couple of months because it's on ITV and they cut back on their news bulletins. But even so, there is the start of women entering public life in a way that has not been evident before. Sure. And talking about women in public life, you know, we have we have a queen on the throne. Does that change anything about the way in which women are perceived? I'm not sure that it does, to be honest. I think, although there is great enthusiasm for Queen Elizabeth II, 
it's something we've encountered before. It's still within living memory that Queen Victoria had ruled the country for a very, very long time. I'm not sure that it changes perceptions a great deal. I want to talk now about health and the welfare state. We had a lot of questions about the NHS. A question we had on Twitter was simply, how do people feel about the NHS? Positively, as far as I can tell. It was genuinely welcomed. It was a big shift. As much as anything else, it's to do with the security of knowing that it's there. Because obviously most people don't use the NHS on a daily basis. That's not its function. It's a safety net. It's the idea that if anything happens to me, I do have access to this. And so it provides a sense of security for the nation, I think, in a way that wasn't there before when the fear of getting ill was not simply the illness, but the cost that it was going to bring to you and the possibility that you would not be able to afford that. And so it helps to build a secure, stable country where you don't have that hanging over you, the possibility of it. I'm not sure how much it changes in terms of the health of the nation within the 1950s, because a lot of this is a long-term thing. Health was improving anyway. People had better diets. There is a very extensive programme of slum clearance where housing conditions are improving in the 1950s. The fact that we have virtually full employment obviously makes a huge difference as well. It is a more affluent country. People have the money that they can afford a better lifestyle. And a lot of that plays into health rather than the NHS is mostly to do with sickness. But the changes in the decline of infant mortality, of the childbearing deaths, part of that is the NHS and part of that is wider social conditions. And then also the NHS brings in these massive vaccination programmes of polio and TB and diphtheria and whooping cough. There's a long-term impact of that. I think the health changes that you see in the 1950s are probably more social. It takes a while for the fung impact of what the NHS has done. It takes a while for that to feed through into health improvements and health outcomes more generally. Moving on again to another topic, we also had plenty of questions about the British Empire and, well, the decline of the British Empire specifically. Sonia on Facebook simply wants to know was, how did the empire change immediately after the war? Well, immediately after the war was the independence of India and Pakistan in 1947, which again was something that had been left over from a long time previously. I mean, it had been kind of agreed in the 1920s that this was going to happen. Certainly by the early 30s, it was clear. What wasn't expected was that the African colonies would achieve independence as quickly as they did. India was expected, Africa not so much. And the big change was in 1951 when there were elections in the Gold Coast, as it then was, Ghana as it now is, and Kwame Nkrumah was elected as Prime Minister. He was in jail at the time for his campaigning against British rule, but he won a general election. And from that point on, it was very clear that the Gold Coast was going to become independent. I think it was 1957 that it finally achieves independence. But it was apparent from 1951 this was going to happen very, very rapidly. And the example of the Gold Coast and Krumas spread very, very quickly across Africa. And I think the speed at which the British Empire was dismantled took people by surprise. It hadn't been anticipated that this would be quite so soon. People were talking about it would be in maybe two or three generations' time. And then suddenly it seemed as if it was going to be within 
five to ten years. I think it took a very long time for the British psyche to fully comprehend this. I'm not sure it was obvious at the time because it was so dramatically quick and, for the most part, relatively bloodless by the standards of declining empires historically. It takes, I think, another decade or so before people start to fully register what has passed and how different this now is. So it takes a while for there to be this sense of an ending then. I have a question here that is linked to that, and that's from Holly on Instagram, and that's how did immigration affect Britain in the 1950s? It wasn't that big. Even by the second half of the 50s, we're talking about immigration of probably around 30,000 people a year from the Empire and Commonwealth. By modern standards, this is very, very low indeed. There was a kind of symbolic element to it, but actually still it was still quite rare. It's another thing that takes a while for it to kind of feed through because it's not obvious that this is going to be a continuing process. When you first start to get immigration initially from the West Indies and then later from India and the subcontinent, the numbers are fairly small and it is not obvious to anybody that this is going to continue year on year. And it's not until there's an accumulation of years when it becomes clear that this is a pattern, that that's when I think it starts to have a political impact. And out of interest, Alwyn, is there much internal migration going on? Are people leaving cities and moving out to the suburbs? Are they doing that in reverse? Is there a picture we can gain within Bristol domestically? Certainly a growth of suburbs and, of course, the new towns, which is one of the great changes of the post-war period, the idea of building these Stevenage and Bracknell and so on, these big new developments, Milton Keynes most famously. I mean, this is over a period of some years, but that process has been started. And there is a move out of the cities, particularly London. I mean, the population of London declines from 1950 through to about 1980. And there is a certain amount of movement within the country. Probably not as much as there has been. The 1920s and 30s in particular saw a great deal of movement because of regional unemployment to a large extent, and that not being the case. There was, as I've said before, there was pretty much full employment, and that was mostly across the country. There were exceptions. Liverpool was in decline a bit, but not as much as it was going to be. So going back now, Alwyn's talking about very big global events. One thing I think that comes to mind when you think of the 1950s, and specifically about Britain, is the Suez Crisis. Firstly, can you just give listeners a brief explainer as to what the Suez Crisis actually was? Okay, so the Suez Canal is essential to world trade, and particularly British trade, because it provides a short route from India, basically, is why it's built. It saves ships having to go the whole way around Africa, you can take a shortcut. And in order to build the Suez Canal, there is the Suez Canal Company, which is a privately owned enterprise. But the British government holds the largest share in the Suez Canal Company. Most of the rest is with French shareholders. There is a coup in Egypt in 1952, a military coup, which eventually brings to power General Nasser as president of Egypt. He has a falling out with America in particular, but 
sees that the way forward economically is to nationalise the Suez Canal, and does so in 1956. And in response to that, Britain and France, who are the two shareholders in the Suez Canal Company, who have now been deprived of their great asset, decide that they will stage a military response and concoct an excuse in order to do so and send troops to Egypt in order to forcibly retake control of the canal. Before they arrive, America, to put it simply, tells Britain to stop and puts sufficient pressure on Britain that we do not send our troops and there is no military action, not none, but it's not, it's not what was intended. And essentially, the problem for Britain and the British establishment, it, this is a huge loss of face because it establishes that we do not control our own foreign policy anymore. We cannot do what we wish in the world if America disapproves. And this is, I mean, to tie it back, this is 1956. The Gold Coast is already heading towards independence. The empire is starting to fall apart. We don't have control over our military operations and our foreign policy. And this old establishment that I started by talking about, the, you know, the, these people who are left over from Victorian times, people start asking what the point of them is, because surely their job was to administer the empire, and they can't even do that, and they can't even control British actions and protect British interests in the world. It is possible that they are not really quite up to the job. And I think internally there's a... There's a loss of faith in the establishment. The establishment itself feels humiliated on the world stage, but internally, domestically, I think the problem is that they increasingly look impotent. Right, okay. And of course, it leads to the resignation of Anthony Eden. Mm. And it's a huge embarrassment to Britain on the world stage. So does it jolt British confidence then, do you think? I think it does. And it has a, it has a long-lasting effect. I mean, one of the effects is... Well, for a start, we see the reintroduction of rationing. Briefly, petrol is rationed again because obviously this isn't this affects oil imports. And one of, one of the odd side effects of that is the invention of the mini car. The mini is intended to live in a world where petrol is rationed and is therefore very cheap to run. And so this great style icon of the 1960s kind of swinging London actually comes out of the Suez Canal and the Suez Crisis. But it also has an impact politically because. Britain is, as you say, embarrassed, humiliated. France is infuriated because it, this was supposed to be a joint operation and we're pulling out and therefore they have to pull out as well. But they blame us for it. And it introduces a tension between France and Britain that is going to be really important in the 1960s when Britain tries to join the European community, as it then was, the European Union as we now know it, and France rejects the British application. And to some extent, that is because of the bad faith that is left behind from Suez. It does have a very long tail, this very short-lived crisis. Yeah. And talking of geopolitical tensions, there are, of course, huge mounting tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Hmm. We have the birth of the Cold War. How does that affect Britain and its foreign policy? It brings politicians together in Britain to a large extent. NATO is very largely the creation of Ernest Bevan, the Labour Foreign Secretary in the 1940s. We talk a lot in modern historical circles, we talk a lot about the post-war consensus, and normally that's talked about in terms of economic arrangements and the world that ended when Margaret Thatcher decided to turn her back on consensus. But actually, just as important as that, 
was the consensus that was established then and still lasts. Britain was very clear which side we were on in the Cold War, and all major political parties were very clear where we were. We were on America's side, and that consensus has survived. It is still evident today. We see some of the... I I think the first of the great spy trials in the Cold War period is in Britain with Klaus Fuchs, the German-born scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project and was prosecuted in 1950 at the Old Bailey. And that set a pattern for a whole series of spy trials that would follow. He'd been giving atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. That was 1950-51 is when Guy Burgess and Donald MacLean defect to the Soviet Union, key figures in the British intelligence world who turn out to have been Soviet double agents, which, of course, then gives huge impetus to Ian Fleming to create James Bond and all the spy fiction that follows and becomes part of the cultural tapestry of our times. So you say then that this post-war consensus then is so often framed in terms of economics, it's broadly about foreign policy even more. I think so, because ultimately that matters more. There is cross-party agreement on Britain acquiring atomic weapons. We have our first test of an atomic bomb in 1952, but it has been planned for by a Labour government, and then it's under a Conservative government that it happens. And that consensus remains as well. I mean, occasionally rocked a little bit by a Labour party that drifts against nuclear weapons from time to time, but broadly has always been on the same page. Okay, so to conclude then, Alwyn, we've covered a lot of different topics. And I have a kind of very big question here from Susie on Twitter, which was simply, how different was Britain in 1959 compared to 1950? I think it is clear that all the trends and the developments that have been going on, they are starting to come together, to coalesce. Britain in the 1960s is going to be a very different country. But I think that is already kind of, it's just on the cusp. And you can feel that it's just on the cusp. There's been all these, I've mentioned the advent of rock and roll and its impact, the rise of television, which is going to become even bigger, divorce reform, changes in attitudes towards social morality. There's a whole load of things where the 1950s is, everything is in its infancy. And if it had stopped then, you would say the country hadn't changed. But we know what's going to happen next. All of this stuff is going to become massively important. And the country will be transformed. And I think by the end of the 1950s, you can see it's just about to take that next step, where a new world is genuinely born. And I think that's that's what people have been aiming for right the way through the 1950s, but it hasn't quite happened yet. That idea of you're angry because everything's changed and Jimmy's angry because everything's still the same. By the end of the 1950s, you can see that everything is just about to change. Right. And do you think it was true that people never had it so good? That famous quote? That, that was Macmillan's quote, wasn't it, in 59? Yeah, no, they had. It was a genuine, genuine comment. There was material prosperity at a level that nobody had dreamed of previously. This genuinely was a growing consumer paradise. People were getting domestic appliances. Washing machines completely transforms the life of women in Britain. Fridges were becoming normal. Televisions were obviously the the biggest consumer durable, but telephones were starting to become an established feature in people's houses. And those houses were 
no longer the old slums to a large extent. There was still a, a lot of old housing stock around. But yeah, no, things were better. We had had a decade where there had been economic growth, there had been low unemployment, people were richer than they had been. And those changes that we talked about, the NHS, education as well, which we haven't touched on, but education, which had rolled down to the entire country, people had access to health and education that was previously restricted to the wealthy. This was now universally available. Things were much, much better than they had been. That was Alwyn Turner, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Chichester. Alwyn is the author of several books on 20th century Britain and has also recorded podcast episodes for us on both the 1960s and the 1990s. You can find them online at historyextra.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Greenhardt.